Deuteronomy 32. Beginning to read verse 1. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, as the showers among the grass. But I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Justice, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Let's pray again. Father, we pray that you would inscribe this word on our hearts and imprint it upon our minds and help us to walk according to thy word and in your will. Bless your people for coming out tonight to this study. Father, we do pray as it's already been prayed this evening that we believe here knowing that we have been at your feet, Lord Jesus. That we believe here knowing that we have been feasting at your table. And maybe say it was good for us to be here. For it was here that we met with the Lord. So glorify your son, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak this evening on Jesus, man's perfect God and God's perfect man. Jesus, man's perfect God and God's perfect man. When we look at him, the Lord Jesus Christ, we see deity clothed, veiled in humanity. We see him who is eternal, he who is eternal. And we see him now brought in to that which is time. And so when we look at it, remember that Jesus, even when he speaks in the Gospels, he speaks as God, yet at times being the God-man, he speaks still as man. And so when we look at this, we want to see how Jesus is man's perfect God and how he's God's perfect man. If you look at verse 4 of our reading, it says of the Lord, He is the rock, capital R, speaking of him. And remember Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus says, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? His disciples said, Some say the whole word, Elias or Elijah or Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And he says, But whom say ye that I am? See, it's different when what the people say. The general consensus is, who am I? 
What do men say? Who do they say I am? The general consensus from men. This is what they think. And we see that today where men think he's a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He's the son of God. And he's God's only son. And they may say, well, you know, he's a prophet or he's a good man or he's been a great man and he's all those things but so much more. He is God manifest in the flesh. And then he turns around to the disciples and he, and he says, but whom say ye that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter turns to him and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And so the Lord then turns to Peter and says, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And he tells them about giving them the keys of the kingdom, but this is what he says. Upon this rock, the revelation of him, the revelation that he's not just a prophet, but more than a prophet. He's not just a spiritual uh, guru as men think it. He's not even just a philosopher. He's this and so much more. And he's saying, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you think of the people who have been under trial and our sister Helene prayed tonight for those who are in the persecuted church who don't have the freedom and the liberty that we're afforded here tonight. And they're being beheaded for their faith. They're being persecuted. They're being jailed. And that happened right across, if you remember, even in the early church right across even the West into the times of, of um, persecution, the fires of Smithfield and so on. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, even though people are dying, even though all hell, as it were, the grave, the fear of death comes against my people, he says, it will not prevail against the church. He says, because I will build it. So the idea here is, is, he says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So it's not who, what the general consensus is. But what do you say? What is your thinking on me? So Christ is the rock. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about the spiritual rock that followed Israel. And he says, and that rock was Christ. So there was a literal rock where water came out of, but the rock they're speaking of is Christ himself before Bethlehem. You see, so here Paul tells us these things. Now notice, he is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Here we have in verse 4, the perfection of God. The perfection of Christ. His work is perfect. In other words, he's our rock. His work is perfect. All his ways, his judgments are perfect. His truth is perfect. And he is perfectly right. We're going to look at it in a minute. We have the perfection of God in verse 4. Then in verse 5, we have the corruption of man. I want you to see the difference here now. The corruption of man. Verse 5 says, they have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. So here we have verse 4, the perfection of God. And verse 5, the corruption of man. One is way low. The other is way high. 
unable to attain the low to the high, the corruption to the perfection. So the word perfect here, his work is perfect. It gives the idea that every single thing that he has done, whether in creation, the formation of the nation, the, the, the salvation that he brings, the redemption, he says, every single bit of it is already perfect. It's perfect. So we add nothing to what God has done for us, what Christ has done. It's perfect. It doesn't need anything added. The word perfect here, his works are perfect, is a Hebrew word, tamin. And it's used for other English words, but yet it's this, the exact same Hebrew word. For example, the term without blemish is used 44 times. English words without blemish is used 44 times for this word tamim, the same word for perfect. The word perfect itself, the English word for tamim, is used 18 times. The word upright is used 8 times. The word without spot is used 6 times. The word uprightly is used 4 times. The word whole, W-H-O-L-E, is used four times. The word sincere is used for this word tamim or perfect two times. And sincerity, it's used once. And complete, it's used once. And the mean full, in the fullness of something, it's used once. So there's a lot of English renderings for the one word tamim, which is used here in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. His work is Tamim, his work is perfect. His work's without blemish. It's perfect, it's upright, it's without spot. It's whole, it's sincere, and it's got full of sincerity. It's complete and it's full. If we wanted to use all our English words that go along with it. But now we want to give you an example where it fits in. For example, in Exodus chapter 12. The chapter of Exodus 12 is the coming out of Israel from Egypt. And you know the story, they have to slay a lamb and take its blood, put it in a bucket, take the hyssop plant, dip it in the, the blood and put it upon the doorposts and the door lintels. The doorposts and the, the door lintels. And the Lord says he was passing through, the last plague it was for Egypt was the death angel, as people call it. But the Lord says, he's passing through Egypt this night, but when I see the blood, I will pass over you where we get Passover. So notice what he says in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5 when he's telling him to take a lamb. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Now this is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your lamb shall be without blemish. In other words, a perfect lamb to bring redemption. A perfect lamb must be slain for its blood to be applied. And so here is the word tamim. Your lambs will be without blemish. It must be perfect. It must be whole or it's given in sincerity. Everything about it. There's nothing wrong with it. Here's another one for you. Psalm 119. You can turn to it if you want just to, to read it yourself. Psalm 119. 
and letter A, run down. Tell you what, let's go to the first verse first of all. There's two of them here I want you to look at. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. See in verse 1, blessed are the undefiled. There it is again. The undefiled is the same word, tamim. Blessed are the undefiled, or those who are without spot or blemish. Now this is important because we're going to see how we need Christ. Now we all know as believers what, it, what it's taken, but sometimes we get a fresh perspective on something and it just increases our faith and it causes us to fall in love with him even more. Notice, blessed are the undefiled, or blessed are those who are without blemish or without spot. In the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Let your eye run down, flick right over to verse 80. To verse 80. And notice what it says here. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I be not ashamed. Now we're going to have to break that down for a minute to try and bring us further into this. Let not my heart, it's personal, let not my heart be sound in thy statues. Pardon me, let my heart be sound in thy statues. Pardon me. The word sound is the word tamim. It's again another word for it. And tamim means perfect. The perfect, the works of God are perfect. So here the psalmist is using the same word. He says, let my heart be perfect before you in thy statutes. Now, what does it mean in thy statutes? Simply put like this. The word statutes is derived from a root verb. This is what it means. It means to engrave. Engrave or to inscribe. It gives the idea of the written word of God and the authority of his written word being inscribed in our hearts, engraved in our minds. You hear me praying that all the time, don't you? Because it can be in the book. The Ten Commandments even can be on tables of stone. But when it's written in our hearts, we carry the love for him with us. It's inscribed in us. It's it's inscribed and engraved within us. So the idea here is that the written word of God and the authority of the written word is inscribed in our hearts and our minds. Listen, declaring his authority and power of giving us laws. In other words, we are saying, you're my God even when I leave this building. You're my God when I leave the prayer room. You're still my God when I leave the Bible study, and your word doesn't change no matter what outside influences say. That's the idea of this. Now, to let it be perfect, man fails miserably. Mankind, woman, man fails miserably. Let me give you an example here of this. He says that I be not ashamed. 
Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And later I again run down to the end of the chapter. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman. See the word made there, by the way, it's the word he builded. He builded a woman from the rib or the side. He made, um, I just get my, he made a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now notice, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Okay? They were not ashamed. The word here for ashamed is the exact same word in Psalm 119 and verse 80. Let my heart be perfect in saying, your word is inscribed in me. It's engraved in me. That wherever I am, I realize, I know, I'm aware that you are God, whether I'm on my own or in company. That you are God and that your word does not change. That I will not be ashamed. So there's shame comes when our hearts are feeling that way. It's the same word here. It's Adam looks on Eve and Eve on Adam and they're completely naked. You think of a wee baby who would be naked running around a living room. You'd have to say, come come here you and get some clothes on. Your wee baby wouldn't think twice about it. See, they're unashamed. They they have no sense of, of shame or guilt. Then when they get older, you know, it changes. And so whenever we're looking at this, Adam and Eve were of the same way. They were unashamed. When we go into chapter 3, chapter 3, the old serpent comes. We know the story. He beguiles Eve and Adam takes of the fruit. And verse 7, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. It says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, notice, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And they said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? You see the shame now? He's now realizing. Now it's not just because of nakedness. The idea is he knows nakedness is then linked to sin. Nakedness is linked to the sin in the garden. And for example, Peter, amongst a bunch of sinners on a boat, he's naked when he's fishing. And the risen Savior comes to the shores of Galilee and shouts, Children, have you any meat? And what happens? He goes to jump in, but he girds himself first because he was naked. He had no shame amongst other sinners, but when Christ came into view, 
That's when things changed. How did I go before him? And then we're told there'll be the day when we will stand before him and some will be, as it were, naked. God will read through the hearts and motives of all men and women. But now notice this. Go with me to Deuteronomy 32 again. Deuteronomy 32. So I'm building a picture up of what this perfection of God is in comparison to ourselves. Okay? The perfection of God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Now, when we read here, all his ways are judgment, we see God then as this big, angry God sitting in the heavens wanting to destroy us and to beat us. That's not what this means. Yes, he is the judge. Yes, he is. But the idea here is the, 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 the Holy Spirit is showing us that he is not only the judge, but he also judges for good things and things that are bad. And the idea here is that his judgment is always right. His judgment is always correct. The actual word here for all his ways are judgment. It gives the idea of of a forensic decision being made about something. Now, you know when something's happened and people stand before a court and they bring the forensics out. That's the fine details that prove without a shadow of a doubt what is right and what is wrong. And the idea here is something similar. It's a forensic showing It's a forensic decision that God knows every intimate detail. So when his word is written in our hearts or engraved in our hearts and inscribed in our minds, we take it with us and there we are conscious. You don't leave here and go into the shop over the road and think, nobody sees me. I know I can get away with sticking a bar of chocolate in my pocket. Because it's written in our hearts. It's engraved and it's imprinted in our minds. And his word still stands in our lives. So notice this then. If you go to Exodus 28, I want to just show you one or two wee things out of Exodus chapter 28. Just a couple of versions where this word is used. Exodus 28 and... Let your eye run down to verse 15. Okay. Let me get it here. Okay. Verse 15. And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment. See the word? With cunning work. After the work of the ephod, thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet, of fine twined linen, thou shalt make it. Verse 29. And Aaron shall bear the images of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. When he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Verse 30. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, And they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment 
of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. Aaron is the high priest of Israel. The breastplate has 12 stones in it, one different stone for each tribe in Israel. Their names are engraved in it. So the breastplate's called the breastplate of judgment. So that as a high priest, he walks in, and there he's going to stand before God with the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat lid, the two cherubims touching wing to wing. And then he has the blood sprinkling it upon the furniture in the Holy of Holies. And as he walks in, he is sprinkling that pleading, one for his own sin, and then secondly, for the sins of his people. And so he's bearing it on his heart, so it's close to his heart. He's walking into the holy place with it, and he's saying, we have sinned on this breastplate. Here's the tribes mentioned. Do you know them all, Lord? We are admitting we are coming to you and saying we are sinners. Now, when the glory comes down, the only thing that saves the high priest is the blood of the Lamb, the blood that was sprinkled. So the judgment is this, the Urim and the Thummim were, were stones which were colored and they gave decision and direction. So the idea is he's walking in under judgment. Here by his heart, he's laying his open heart of sin before, before him, before the Lord and of Israel. And then he's pleading the blood. When he pleads the blood and behind that breastplate, there is judgmental decision. But when he comes out again, He's free from the guilt. Now, the same word for judgment is used in Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you go to Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 5, just showing you little examples of this, because if we can just grasp hold of what the Lord has done for us. 5 and verse 10. Notice what it says. This is for a trespass offering, okay? Verse 10 says, And he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the manner. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, which he'll sinned, and it shall be forgiven him. Now notice this. See the word according to the manner. It is the same idea of he shall come as the Lord has judged it to be so. See the difference here now? It gives the idea God has made a decision, a judgment of how they would come before him. Not only judgment in days of judgment, we think of the end time judgment and all this, but really God's way. He says, you'll come as God has ordained it. It's my judgment that you do so. And you come through the blood. Again, when you go to the last book, we'll not go to it for times, so you go to the last book of Malachi in the Old Testament, he mentions about Moses. Malachi mentions about Moses and the, the, the law, the judgment of it. And the idea of it is this, that after Malachi, God stops speaking. After, this is the last chapter of Malachi, God stops speaking for 400 years. And what happens? John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his path. And then what happens? He sees Jesus coming, and he cries, Behold the 
Lamb of God. You see the, you see the link of that now? See where God is. See, he's, he, he's man's perfect God, but yet he's God's perfect man. Let's look a little bit further into this, okay? So the, we see the perfection of God, and this is how you come. You want to come, you come my way. Salvation is you come God's way through the cross. Old Testament was through the temple. In all the whole wide world, there was one little cube of, a, a, I think it was about 14 or so feet cubed, was the Holy of Holies. Nowhere else outside of the heaven that God's abode of the angels are. Nowhere outside it would God meet man anywhere else. He said to, Mo- to Moses, I will meet you there. That's nowhere else. God didn't say, yes, he came and he met Moses at the burning bush, but God instituted, this is the manner, this is the way, and none other. And he says, I'll meet you there. That is at the ark, the holy of holies in the tabernacle, and then, of course, it was in the temple. But yet when God came and spoke through the burning bush, what did he say? Moses, take thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place where my standest is holy ground. There was no other holy ground in the whole of the earth. There's no holy ground. Only that little place in the desert. Can you imagine just you and the Lord in the desert and there's no holy ground anywhere else? And once his presence goes, there's no holy ground. And again, when we go into the new covenant, we come through the blood of the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God. When we come through that, we find out then that the holy ground shifts from a one-location temple. When the Holy Ghost blew in in Acts chapter 2 upon God's people, religion blew out. It's like a gust of wind came and read it out. And what happens then? We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So where is the holy place of God? It's called the naos, by the way, in the Greek New Testament, the temple of the God, of God, the, the naos, not the herion, which would be the bricks and the mortar like this building we're in. But the naos of God is you. You know what that tells me? Then wherever you are, he is with you. And when he is with you, where you stand is holy. And now you have his statute. You are under his authority. His word is engraved in your heart. It's imprinted upon your mind. It's inscribed there. And wherever you are, the word of God is living in you. The spirit of God is within you. And he makes you holy. And everywhere you go, you have the word, the authority of the word and the power of the spirit. Not tremendous, isn't it? Now I notice this. Time's near away. We'll have to run through this briefly. And okay. Exodus chapter 32 again, please. Is anybody else warm? No? Can you turn it down a bit? I'm parboiled here. Boys are there. Just turn me over in another 15 minutes and I'll be cooked on the other side. Yeah. So now notice what it says in verse 5. Deuteronomy, pardon me, I said Exodus. Deuteronomy. I'm aware it was in Exodus. The heat's going to my head there. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now take note of what is said here. Verse, verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. The Lord looks in his holiness and his perfection and he sees what man is and they need a savior. 
They need salvation. They need to be cleansed. They need to be forgiven. But how does that happen by God still keeping judgment and justice? What decision would be made right? You and I would be maybe at a loss. Do we just let them off with it? But God can't let sin go. He has to, he has to judge sin. And so the animal sacrifice was the covering. It appeased God. But when Christ came, he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The sacrifice of Christ well pleased the Father. Not just appeased him, but well pleased him. Now, the word corrupted, they have corrupted themselves is the word shakath. And it means to be marred. There's loads of renderings of this now through the Old Testament where it talks about uh, the prophet's marred garment that's buried by the river bank and so on. It's the same word. And it represented, obviously, Judah at the time. It means to be marred, to be spoiled, to go to ruin, to, go, to be rotten. It means to be lay waste. In fact, it's where you get the word you're a waster from. It's where we get the word from, you're a waster. It's from this word. That means you're corrupted and you're, you're not worth much. You're not up to doing much. You, you, know, you don't want to know much. and You're a waster. And it means destroyed as well. So Genesis chapter 6 then to look at this. Genesis chapter 6. And we'll just skip across the verses. This is the chapter of Noah being warned of the flood and all the things that were happening in the earth and all the violence that was filling the earth. Genesis 6 and verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence, filled with violence through them and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So you can see they've just went into total corruption. Verse 17, and behold, I even I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. So here God has to judge sin. He has to. Come brush it under the carpet. But to keep his judgment right, to keep himself a just God, truth and holiness, what does he do with this? Well, there's none good enough. We've all corrupted ourselves. Exodus 32. Exodus chapter 32. And verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Now, Here's not only violence, but here is spiritual corruption too. Now, they did go into sexual corruption. But this was other gods. They made the golden calf out of the gold earrings. You remember that story when Moses is up the mountain? And the Lord looked and says, they've corrupted themselves. See how God had to make a way that man couldn't do it himself? God had to do it. And if God doesn't do it, then we're lost. Now, when we go to Psalm 14... Psalm 14, please, and verse 1. 
And if you mark Psalm 14 and verse 1, when you go home read Psalm 53, it's the same again. It's as though it's been reprinted. Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. So now corruption is the atheist point of view. God says it's corruption. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. That's strong language, isn't it? There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So we see the corruption of man. It's the same here. God says they have corrupted themselves. They've marred, they're spoiled, they've went to ruin, they're rotten, they're waste, they're wasters, they're destroyed. And then he's saying they're, they're filthy. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Do you know what you're seeing? You're seeing a pattern of the human nature here. You're seeing the pattern of your nature and my nature. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 4. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One to Israel, of Israel unto anger. They are gone away back. Now, see, when you read on, the Lord says, that from the sole of the foot, even under the head, there's no soundness in them. In fact, he tell, talks of wounds, bruises, putrefying sores that haven't been closed up, neither mollified with ointment. They haven't been treated. They don't know how to. Even though the prophets went to them, even though the Lord of the Lord came, they didn't know what to do because they just couldn't receive the word. They couldn't accept it. And they'd done nothing with it. Isaiah chapter 11 then. And verse 9. Here is a promise for the kingdom come. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See the word destroy is the same word here for corrupt. They shall not hurt nor corrupt in all my holy mountain. In other words, my holy nation, all my holy people. There's going to be no corruption in Christ's kingdom. There's going to be no fallen humanity in the fullness of the kingdom. Now, you can mark it instead of turning to it for we need to wrap up. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 9. Listen to what the Lord says. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. You've corrupted, marred, spoiled yourself, gone to ruin. Thou hast destroyed thyself. This was, now Hosea was speaking to the northern kingdom at the time, and the Lord was saying, they've destroyed themselves, set up idols, they brought every false religion in, they became wicked, they became violent, they became prosperous, uh, that they wanted for nothing at the point, at the the apex of, of their history. They, they became 
spiritually adulterous before God. And he says, you've destroyed yourself. You think of what our, our wee nation was like. You think what Ulster was like. But you think of what Britain was like. UK. When churches were filled with people worshipping the Lord. You think of that, of the heights that the nation was at. And look at it now. Look at the state of it. Destroyed themselves. This is what he says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. In me is thy help. So God says it's never too late while you're breathing. You're never gone too far while you're in the land of the living. So, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 5 says, Their spot is not the spot of his children. Their spot, God sees them, he says, Their spot is not my spot. The idea here is, is that it's a word for spot is the word movement. It means their blemish, their defect, and it can be physical or moral, whatever it is. It says, that's not the mark of my children. They're not mine. They are perverse. Notice what the, the, the terms here, perverse and crooked generation. The word perverse uh, 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 is the word ekesi, and it means they're distorted. They've become perverse and false. It's deceiving them. They're deceitful. So when the Lord looks at it, he says, look at the way these people have come. They're not my children. In Proverbs chapter 11, if you'll flick to it. Proverbs chapter 11. Just left out a wee verse here. Notice this. Proverbs 11. That's right on down, verse 20. They that are of a froward heart. You know what froward really means? Crooked. Prideful. They that are of a froward heart, a froward heart are an abomination to the Lord. But such as are upright in their way are his delight. This is the same idea. They that are of a distorted, deceitful, false heart. Proverbs 28. Go to it, you see, one more of these. Proverbs 28, verse 5. Evil men understand not judgment. But they that seek the Lord understand all things. Better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. And what is being told us here is, is it's the same word for uh, perverse and crooked generation from Deuteronomy 32 and 5. The, the idea here is, is that you know, there are those who have little but are rich because they know him. And there are those who are rich and have everything, and you know, they're just so greedy and spoiled with it. And it leads them to sin, but they've nothing, he says. 
The Lord Jesus says in Revelation 3 to the letters to say in church, which is the last end time church before his return, which we're living in. He says, he says, Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and of need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire. And so on. So you can see even today how this is, is very relevant. The word crooked is, is they are a perverse and crooked generation is the word pathotol and it means they're twisted, torturous. Twisted and torturous generation. In Genesis chapter 30, remember Rachel and Leah. Remember there was a wee bit of a Remember there was a wee bit of a trouble because Rachel couldn't bear children and Leah was having children. We see she was, we would call it rubbing her nose in it. And can you imagine the two of them in the house? And she's saying, I have children, you don't. The Lord mustn't love you. Imagine Rachel's mind and Rachel's heart. Notice what it says in Genesis 30 and 8. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings I have wrestled. With my sister. And I have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. That was her first. That was her child she was born. Now notice with great wrestlings I have wrestled. The word wrestled here is the root word for pethotol, for crooked. But it doesn't mean say she, she's saying there's a crookedness with this one. And oh, she was at me and she was at me and she was at me and she was, we call it winding me up. She was really hurting me with this. She, and I wrestled with her over it. But now God has blessed me for I've prevailed and given me this child. You see the idea of twisted and tortured? She said, I was twisted with this woman. This woman's twisted and she tortured me. It's the same word the Lord says. They are a perverse and twisted gender. Everything, you think of it now, everything goes against his word. Everything is twisted to suit those who want to live in their sin. Everything we have to wrestle about it now to try and have sanctification even among God's people. You talk about sanctification, the engraven word in the heart, the, the, the imprinted word on the mind, living the life for Christ. Churches, you mention that, and they just, people just, whoa, I, I can't do this. I, I, I live my way. And so they wrestle with it, their words, and they twist it to live the life they want. Or those in the world who twist it so they can pass laws that are against God's word. Abortion laws. Abortion laws. They pass the laws for all manner of sin. They pass the law for what they call equal marriage. There only is one marriage between a man and a woman. We cannot change nor redefine it. Why? Because his word is not only written in the book, it's engraved in us. It's imprinted in our minds. And we walk like that, but yet Christians are saying, yeah, it'll be okay. Many of them. So, you see that the poverty of man, and you see the corruption of man, you see the perfection of God. He's perfect. He's holy. And he looks at us and, wow, how could he ever let any of us into his heaven? How could this ever be? Well, he says in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 6, 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Do you thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath, notice, bought thee? You're bought by the blood of Christ. He's bought thee. Secondly, look, he ha- hath he not made thee? He's made us kings and priests unto our God and established thee. He set our feet firmly upon this rock. We have a foundation that no mother can be laid. So here we find that Christ is all in all. Now, Peter tells us that we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold after the feigned conversations of your fathers, the lifestyles of your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. Notice, a lamb without blemish. Remember at the start? Perfect lamb. No spot. Perfection upon perfection in Christ. He is man's perfect God, but he becomes flesh and he's God's perfect man. Why? He lived the life we couldn't live. He kept the law we couldn't keep. He came under his Father's will and lived it out to the full, took our sin and bore it on the cross. And when you read Hebrews 5, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about his perfections, how he's greater than the tabernacle. It talks about the things that Christ has done for us. It's a perfect day coming. One more just to close. I think this is important since we're Pentecostals. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let your eye run down to verse 8. Paul says, Charity or love never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, what is in part? Let's look at the verse, at verse 8. Prophecies will fail, tongues shall cease, and knowledge will vanish away. We know in part and prophesy in part. So what he's saying is, look, we haven't got it all yet. We're not in perfection yet. And when will perfect come? When that which is perfect has come, what is perfect? So people pick out one thing here, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Now listen, brothers and sisters. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Let's go to verse 10 then. When that which is perfect is come. Does this mean then that whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away? Has knowledge, knowledge vanished away? Knowledge is still with us. So it cannot be divided just to try and suit a doctrine, a teaching. So what is that which is perfect? It's coming. Some say, well, it's the Word of God. Well, then we have to say, was there ever a time when the Word of God was never perfect? The Word of God was forever settled in heaven before the foundation of the world. It was always perfect. The law of the Lord is 
perfect converting the soul. So what is perfect then? They say, well then it's, oh no, it's the canonized scripture of these 66 books. So then we, we had to wait until men decided which books were putting in there. It was God's word not perfect before that. Let me just show you one more verse as we close. Proverbs chapter 4. Maybe help us to grasp hold of this little verse. Proverbs chapter 4. Let me just get it. And at your eye down, run down. <clears throat> to verse 18. But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. When's the perfect day? When Christ comes again. When Christ comes again. Perfection comes on the perfect day. When Christ comes again. The way of the wicked is his darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Surely that's the days that we live in. So this perfect one, he's man's perfect God and he's God's perfect man. The high priest had to go in and he he sacrificed for his own sins first. You read the book of Hebrews, the chapters I was telling you, it talks about he was the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not of Levi. It's finished. When he cried, it was finished. And so he now has ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us as our great high priest. But he's not praying for his own sins first because he is perfect. He is without spot, without blemish. He is the man in the glory, standing perfect for you and for me. And when the Father looks at you, he sees you through the perfect one, the one who is well-pleasing to him, and you're perfect in his sight. Isn't that tremendous, isn't it? So the Lord bless his word to us tonight. Amen. God bless.